Why is it that you've taken it to that level? What's in you that makes that happen? Well, my therapist says I should just get out more. It is peculiar, isn't it? That you think you've got to produce 40 books. My wife continually says, well, you're working on another book. Why don't you just write one book that will actually sell? What drives me is I love doing it. A recent paper that I've just published called The Library of Babel. Super easy to produce your assignment, your essay on coaching or on the reformation. You type in your question, out it blurbs a whole set of stuff for you, cut and paste, drop it in. And we know from the tools that are available within universities, it's very difficult to spot these texts. The problem, of course, one is it's plagiarism, so you're getting somebody else to do the work. Second problem is, at the moment, ChatGPT and other tools are not truthful. When they don't know a piece of information, they'll make up an answer. And the answer that they make up is very believable. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Now, my regular listeners will know that I like to bring the world's leading coaches to the Unlock Moments to talk all things psychology, motivation, and how to find balance, fulfillment, and success in work and in life. And this episode is no different. My guest on the Unlock Moment today is a globally recognized coaching psychologist and executive coach, ranked among the top 10 professional coaches worldwide. Professor Jonathan Passmore has helped numerous leaders in finance, technology, sports, and government to reflect, gain fresh perspectives, and acquire new insights. He is Professor of Coaching and Behavioural Change at Henley Business School here in the UK, which is where I trained in coaching. And his work includes 40 books and over 200 scientific articles and book chapters, making him one of the most published coaching researchers in the world. He's a Senior Vice President at Ezra Coaching, a world-leading digital coaching provider. Like many who've graced this stage, Jonathan is a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches Group, and he has just this week been shortlisted for the prestigious Thinkers 50 Coaching and Mentoring Award. I'm looking forward to understanding what drives Jonathan to be such a prolific researcher and author in the field of coaching, how he thinks about finding purpose, and of course I want to hear more about the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity that helped him to figure out the path ahead. Professor Jonathan Passmore, it's my great pleasure and privilege to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Gary, it's great to join you today. So first of all, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. I know we've been planning this for a few months to get this together. And congratulations for being shortlisted at Thinkers 50, another accolade to add to a very long list. I think you're saying it's the third time you've been nominated. So hopefully this is the year that you take away the, the big silver cup or whatever it is they give you at, at these events. 
Now, we've known each other for a few years and I've watched and admired your stellar academic and commercial trajectory, but I'm curious to learn more about the real Jonathan Passmore. So where do we need to start in your journey to understand the person you are today? Well, I guess for most of us, our journeys start in our childhood, and that's probably true for me and significant moments during that childhood. A background really as a working class boy, a family where there wasn't an expectation and there certainly wasn't a tradition of going to university. Parents who, while they were very hardworking and grandparents who were hardworking, were either manual workers or worked in clerical jobs. But an encouragement from both of my parents to look to the future, to look towards education as a way of escaping that working class background and real encouragement for them to study and to work hard and a belief that hard work will lead to success. And so I had a pretty normal time at primary school, loved football, played around like most of the other children, didn't particularly study hard, went off to secondary school, uh, an encouragement to study. And uh, at the school that I was at, there again wasn't an academic tradition that was there. And in fact, out of the 147 people who were taking what were then CSEs and have become GCSEs, that exam set at the age of 16, out of the 147 of those pupils, only one person went on to university immediately after school to go and get a degree. So there wasn't a tradition in school, uh, my school, for academic attainment. And many of those individuals went into local factories to go and work, often working in engineering or construction type roles. And through a combination of luck and hard work, I succeeded in getting the A-level grades, not a very good A-level grades and not a very good university to go off to. And then went off to, to university and discovered really that if I was going to be successful, that's where a moment, a light bulb, if you like, switched on for me is, wow, I'm suddenly out of my depth amongst all of these people whose mums and dads and brothers and sisters have been at university and I better do something, otherwise I'm not going to be here at the end of this year. So that was a motivation, a change for me to really start knuckling down into work that I hadn't done during my school years. I'd done enough to get by, minimum amount to achieve the outcomes that were uh, required. And that led me to a first class degree. And really, during those four years of study, a growing curiosity about learning and a desire to continue to learn. So having carried on in a world of work for three or four years, I went off to do an MBA, uh, did that and uh, got a good mark in relation to, to the MBA, which led to continued promotions. And about five years after that, well, what else could I go and do? So that led me to be curious, particularly then about human behavior and led me into the paths of psychology. So when you apply a workplace or a, an occupational psychology master's, which I did, the university said, oh, no, sorry, you can't come here. You don't have an undergraduate psychology degree. So that's oh, okay. I'll go and get one of those then. So I went off, got an undergraduate psychology degree, went back, did the master's, and that led me into a PhD. So I'm in an unusual position, slightly weird position uh, of having five degrees, all triggered by a curiosity to find out new knowledge and to be at really not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of application. How can I get better at what I do? How can I be more influential, more persuasive? How can I create a better impact 
on the customers who I'm seeking to serve, on the teams that I'm seeking to lead. Uh, and that ultimately led me into academia. And many during this, this time, freak, you might say lucky or chance incidents with while I had a plan when I left university that I wanted to be a director by the time that I was 30, I achieved that at the age of 27. After that, in some respects, it's all been chance and happenstance. You meet somebody who says, oh, why don't you come and work for us? So that happened when I joined a PwC. Uh, that happened when I was doing the PhD and someone said, oh, we're setting up a program in coaching. Would you like to lead that? with somebody while I was doing the PhD at the university in coaching. And the same happened when I joined Henley, that somebody said, hey, we're looking for somebody. Would you be interested in applying? Yeah, okay, go and do this. So I've had a range of little circumstances that have cropped up and unplanned have led to one outcome after another. And if I look back, I suppose, what's been a differentiating factor over that well, what's now been more than 40 years in the world of work, more than a dozen leadership positions that I've been on, probably the thing that makes the greatest difference has been a capacity to work harder than anybody else, a commitment that I have that isn't I'll do a nine to five or even an eight thirty to six, but is to seize every moment that there is when there is the chance to do something and make a contribution. So I'll volunteer on committees, like the British Psychological Society. I'll get up at five o'clock in the summer on a Saturday and Sunday to continue writing a research article or a book. And while other people might be choosing for a lay-in, you can squeeze in an extra day in a week with three and a half hours work between 5.30 and 8.30 when your partner might get up or the children demand you go and do something with them or take them to friends. So that commitment, that willingness to invest has contributed to success. And it just reminds me, I don't know which famous golfer, it might have been Gary Player or one of the others, uh, who said the phrase, I don't sort of understand it. The harder I practice, the luckier I get. And I sort of feel that that's been true in terms of my own career. As you know, I'm fascinated by moments. And in that amazing story, the first thing I wrote down was being out of my depth. And I, I think I I hear that sort of trajectory shift at that point. So bring me back to that moment. When, wh what was it in that environment at university when you first remember feeling out of your depth? What was it that made you feel like that? I guess it was being surrounded by people who felt they had an entitlement to be at university, an expectation from their family, from their friends, from their brothers and sisters and their network that, this was inevitable that they would end up in university. And this was just part of their story because it had been maybe part of their parent's story or part of their brother or sister's story or a cousin. And so this is just natural. Whereas I felt, wow, this is different. I feel very privileged to have been allowed into this institution to be able to access this level of education and the opportunities that if I work hard and succeed, where this will lead me in terms of my development and in terms of my career. And it comes from talking to people and it comes from sitting in lectures. It comes from that socializing when you have conversations over a beer or a coffee and someone saying, oh yeah, my brother's at Oxford or my sister's at Durham or my dad went to Manchester. And you're thinking, 
Yeah. My granddad was emptying the bins. My dad was working as a, a clerk filling out forms and started really back in the in, in the 1950s on a bicycle cycling delivering telegrams. Mm. Uh, I'm really proud of my parents and what they did and the hard work that they put in, but it's a very different experience. Mm. And they had to save very hard and we had to access public funding. Maybe in today's world where those funds are not available, um, where mortgage costs have gone up and the many other pressures that are on families, maybe we wouldn't have been able to achieve that. But it gave me an opportunity to step out from that world into a very different world, a world I might describe as a very privileged one. And I'm interested in this sort of igniting of work ethic. Do you think you always had the work ethic and you applied it in a different way? Or did you think you found something new in that moment that was ignited? That's a really interesting question. I think it's very hard if you look back maybe 40 years to identify that. Certainly within our family, there was a, a work ethic. And both of my parents worked long hours. My dad had two jobs. And I'm sure that's true in many other families who are seeking to earn as much as they possibly can to meet all of the demand, demands in their family. So I grew up in an environment where people worked pretty hard. And I certainly also had parents who were encouraging to take the next step. Yes, stay on to do A-levels. Yes, think about how you could go off to university. How could we plan to do that? And willing to make sacrifices in other parts of their budget to enable those things to happen. So I don't think it was a, a, a single thing that one could really identify, but that combination of an environment to encourage me to think about that as a possibility in maybe a way that it had never been a possibility when my parents were growing up in the in the 30s and the 40s, certainly during the, during the war. And often when I talk to people about unlocked moments, what's interesting about those moments, or sometimes it's a series of moments, or it's, it's a period of time as opposed to a specific moment in time. But what they talk about is not necessarily a moment of a decision or a choice. It's, it's a moment of knowing something they didn't know before or, or being clear about something they weren't clear on before. And I think I'm hearing with you, there's something about this clarity of the connection between hard work and success, which became very sharply clear for you. I'm fascinated about how that then sparked such an extraordinary work ethic in you, because there's lots of people that have gone through their careers and worked hard. And there's lots of people who've published a book or sometimes two or sometimes four or five. I mean, very few people who've written or contributed to 40 and, and the volume of work that you've created. Why is it that you've taken it to that level? What's in you that makes that happen? Well, my therapist says I should just get out more. <laughs> <laughs> and and there, there is a, it is peculiar, isn't it? That you think you've got to produce 40 books. My, my wife continually says, well, you're working on another book. Why don't you just write one book that will actually sell? Ah, that's, and, the, that's yeah, the magic. And, uh, and it's pretty hard to do a J.K. Rowling or a, you know, a, a multi, multi-million seller book, particularly in the field of coaching. <laughs> um, uh, but I guess there are, what drives me is I love doing it. And it isn't often writing or editing from a point of an expert. I have turned the process into one of a learning process. So once you've got a PhD, what else is there to go and do? I did contemplate doing a second PhD, and I thought that would just be too sad. Um, so really, I've channeled my learning into books. So you, 
you meet fabulous people who are super knowledgeable about an area. And you say, hey, wouldn't you like to contribute towards a book? And they go, yeah, that would be fabulous. So I've acquired a deep understanding of the editing process, how to control, bully, manipulate, encourage people to contribute, help them to frame chapters and synthesize their knowledge into a chapter chunk. And that has been a significant part of, of the output. And I love doing it because I learn so much from amazing people who are writing. And I think by being able to curate people's content into very accessible pieces of knowledge for students, for coaching practitioners, for leaders, I think I'm making a contribution. But I'm also benefiting from that process. And I would say that's equally true in a slightly different way for the written books that I have done. So when I have produced uh, written books or have contributed chapters, there's learning that happens. You might think you know quite a lot about a topic, but as you research it, as you read around it, as you start to really focus, you deepen your knowledge. So as you write, you're thinking about it in fresh and new ways that contributes to your practice as well as your knowledge and understanding. So I've benefited hugely. It's been, it's been like a free post-PhD to engage in. And I see that as being complementary to the research activity that I've done. And I sort of feel that I've overdone the book thing. And so one of, one of the things that I'm trying to do over the next 10 years is to switch attention to doing more research and to try and scale back the books. And part of, part of that has been quite tricky in that people keep approaching me saying, wouldn't you like to do another one? Uh, and another secret which, of course, you're not going to tell anybody, is I'm just rubbish at saying no. So when people equally approach me and say, hey, Jonathan, it would be fabulous to work with you, wouldn't you? They go, oh, yeah, that would be great. I would enjoy that. And you end up with another one. So I have been trying to step away from them. I'm trying to learn the word no and to instead redirect my attention towards more research. And I hope over the next 10 years there'll be more two or three times more papers than there are books. But maybe when I come back in 2033, we can judge whether I've been successful on that. I, I fear that I may not be as successful as I hope, but we'll see where it goes. I have a plan. But you love it. And, and there's something about, you know, life's too short to not do the things that, that you love. How would you articulate your sense of purpose? So I could make a grandiose statement, and I'm not sure that really those grand statements about making a contribution to the world and making it better than I found it when I was born in the 1960s really are grounded in any evidence. Mm. Of course, I would like to say that and believe that. I think I'm much more focused on individual interactions, and if I can make one person's day or multiple people's days slightly better by something I do or say or some knowledge that I've produced, then that's as bad as I must, must do. I am a piece, a single grain of sand on Chesil Beach. You know, there is a billion, multiple billions uh, of people on our planet as there are pebbles or, or pieces of sand on that beach. And to believe that I'm going to influence more than the ones that are in that immediate circle around me, 
but that includes saying thank you to the bus driver when I get off the bus who's just taken me into work. It means letting somebody who is standing next to me on the tube train to get out first or smiling at the ticket collector or being as kind and generous as you can be. And we're all human and we all make mistakes and we're all the ups and downs of what it is to be human. But to try and be generous and kind to the people that I meet, to colleagues at work, uh, and as best as I can to be the best partner for my wife and the best dad for my kids. And that extends equally into the work that I do when I'm a professor teaching at the university, when I'm working with clients at Ezra, when I'm working on my own private coaching practice. If you can leave that person slightly more positive, slightly more knowledgeable than when they entered that, one small step forward is a good outcome. And I think what you just said there is, is so important. I want listeners to, to hear that, that I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of purpose because they think it's supposed to be something big and grandiose. And if it's not grandiose, it's not ambitious enough or it's not important enough or something. But what you said is true to you, whatever you'd said, what you said is true to you. And I was at an event this week where a lot of people in HR were in the room and they were all talking about kind of building engagement and uh, retention in their organizations. And they're talking about how to translate their company purpose into all their people so their people can quote it and state it and live it and follow those behaviors. And in my head, I'm going, well, you're not starting with understanding what's important for them. And to get to what's important to them, you've got to get to what's really important to them, which is what you just said for you. So, and this is kind of coming into some of your other roles in, for example, the digital coaching world. Why is it so important for organizations to, to get people to connect around a sense of purpose or to connect with people's individual purpose? Why is that so important? So I think people do need to sign up to share a commitment to all the organizations seeking to achieve and having some clarity of purpose, engaging employees around that. So there's a conversation, not that the senior team decide Tuesday morning in their executive meeting, this is our purpose, and then seek engagement. The engagement should start in building what that purpose is. Uh, and equally, that's okay when the team says, this is our purpose for our organization. We're pivoting from doing X to doing Y, given a change in the marketplace then that's absolutely fine. And some people will say, this is fabulous. I love it. And there are other people who will say, do you know what? Now is time to go and find a different organization that fits my purpose. Or sometimes we as humans change. And I might start out with a particular strong commitment for looking after stray dogs, but then I feel a calling to look after donkeys or um, <laughs> do something else, you know, um, solve, solve um, problems of Alzheimer's or dementia. So people, people change over time. And I think the other thing that organizations sometimes neglect is that there is this grand vision. But I still hold on to the fact that we're pretty simple folk and most people are just trying to get by. They're trying to do a competent job, earn enough money to give them funds to pay their mortgage or their rent, enough food to, to put on the table to take their children on holiday to play for trumpet lessons or whatever they're by and their children are going to go and do uh, and have a little bit of money left over to save. And while they're doing all of those things, to have some joy and pleasure as they do those things. And I think we might often talk about those grand visions, individual purpose and organizations. But the reality is we're all going to die 
And we have that time between now and then to make a small difference. But when we're gone, no one looks back in three and five years or 10 years or 50 years or 500 years. Wow, didn't Henry VIII have a fantastic vision for how he was going to re reimagine what religion is? People don't talk about those things. And that's true for Henry VIII uh, in his reconstruction of faith in the UK to um, BP or to any other organization or to any individual. You know, we have a short period of time on, on earth. It's been here billions of years. It'll probably still be here in billions of years time. Maybe humanity won't. Let's focus on the here and now and the difference that we can make people today, maybe tomorrow, than not think about some grandiose visions about how we are fundamentally reconstructing the world because we are grains of sand. That's a great reality check. Now, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are up and coming or established professional coaches or leaders who coach in their leadership work. What are the things that are on your mind right now when you look at the evolution of the coaching industry here in 2023? I think there are a number of things that are trends that are worth exploring. So we are seeing the continued growth of digital coaching often described as democratization, sometimes labeled as uberization. And in my view, this has been a positive step in that it is taking coaching away from the elite, away from the executives who have benefited from that and the positive impact that coaching can make on individuals' well-being and their performance, and is starting to cascade that through organizations. Now, this has brought the challenge. This is the critique of liberalization. The salaries have fallen, coaches are being paid less. And I think that we need to find the right balance in the industry to ensure organizations get great value for money in coaching, whilst at the same time, recognizing the skills and the training and the investment that coaches have made. And walking that line is tricky, but I think that we need as we continue through the 20s to think about that balancing act and not sacrifice one or the other. I think the second thing that's happening at the moment is the emergence of AI, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about that, how that's likely to reconfigure the world of work. Goldman Sachs say one in three jobs will probably disappear. I've seen other figures, and McKinsey talking about 80% of jobs being changed as a result of that. I think that there certainly will be a significant change over the next decade. And that the change will impact on some roles disappearing, maybe a third, and these are, these are guesses, maybe a third of jobs will disappear. Maybe a third of jobs will be significantly changed because of the availability of AI and for individuals to, when they've been harnessed, to create AI tools in organizations to be able to then use that as part of their daily activity. And a third of jobs might have a marginal impact as a result of that. And that brings some challenges for coaching. It brings challenges for individuals who are leading change and for managers who are being impacted by change. In the coaching sphere, there is a significant risk, in my opinion, that AI begins to take over the coaching provision. And I think that there is something unique and special about a one-to-one -one conversation between one human being and another. And while AI and a, an AI coaching app can offer value. It is not a replacement for one human being talking to another. 
And I still continue to believe that we'll see AI being weaved in alongside human coaching conversations, even though maybe LinkedIn or Google or Microsoft or others will launch AI coaching apps that are available that are on your phone that could be free at the point of use. But the free means that they'll harvest data from you. So by all means, have a conversation. But as you talk about the fact your washing machine isn't working uh, or that your love life is not going very well, be prepared to receive an advert for a dating app or for a new Zenusi or Bosch washing machine because it will gather that data and the way that those tools will be funded will be advertising. Now, of course, a different model is a pay-per-month subscription, and I'm sure that model will also be available for some products. But I fundamentally come back to a belief that there's something special about one human being engaging with another human being. And when it comes to the world of work, those who have to lead organizations through this AI period, there's been a lot of froth, a lot of talk, but not very much detail of what this might mean. And of course, we are really only looking out across this valley, imagining what it might be in the fields and the forests beneath. And of course, we need to transition from up here on the hill down into that valley to exploit this technology. And this requires, from my view, organizations to manage that implementation in a way that engages employees but it also requires employees to be engaging with those new technologies. Coaches, of course, but also leaders and managers to think about how they might exploit and explore the potential that AI is, but to do so in a way that is ethical, ethical for customers and ethical to protect organizations. So we take a couple of examples. So universities, serious challenge from ChatGPT, a recent paper that I've just published, it's available on my website, jonathanpassmore.com called the Library of Babel. Super easy to produce your assignment, your essay on coaching or on the reformation. You type in your question, out it blurbs, a whole set of stuff for you, cut and paste, drop it in. And we know from the tools that are available within universities, it's very difficult to spot these texts, spot where someone has just cut and pasted with a little bit of changes to send in their assignment in response to an answer. The problem, of course, one is it's plagiarism. So you're getting somebody else to do the work, not you. Second problem is that at the moment, ChatGPT and other tools are not truthful. So that when they don't know a piece of information, they'll make up an answer. And the answer that they make up is very believable to the point when I was doing some testing of the product in the early spring, it produced a piece of content that cited me. I thought that's really interesting. I don't remember writing this piece, but it's in a journal that I've published. It is with people I've written for in the past. And it looks as though the year that it was written in match the volume number for that particular journal. I don't remember writing it. Let me go and have a look. So I went to the individual journal, got access to the journal because I'm privileged position in the university I can get in. And of course, they're on the page numbers. It wasn't an article by me, but it was an article by somebody else. So very believable content being produced, individuals being cited who work in the field, saying things that are broadly sensible, but it's not true. So this leads students to make errors. And of course, once that is written into a blog, written into a book, written into an article, 
we start to produce this library of Babel, where it's almost impossible to sort the truth, verified fact, evidence, from something that's been made up because the chain becomes longer and longer and longer of these repeated misinformation, these false claims. Uh, a second area, of course, of concern is managers and organizations. I've got to produce a report for my boss about how our sales trends are going in selling leather shoes to men in the UK. So I type a couple of prompts into GPT. Part of the prompt gives information about the organization. Of course, this is a learning tool. It's learning from my prompts. So it's harvesting that information. Thank you very much indeed. So your quarter one sales were only 25% of what they were compared to last year at Smith Shoes Limited. Where does that information go? Who has access to that? Where is it going to be reproduced in the future? And also the information that gets pumped out as a response to that prompt. Is it true? How do I then check it? Would I not be better in going out and doing some research? So, of course, these tools will improve over time. But we, the very nature of them is that when there is a gap in their knowledge, unlike maybe you or I, we'd say, I don't know the answer to that question. Or Google, if we do a Google search, returns a zero return. This will simply fill in the gap, almost like a three-year-old when you walk into the kitchen and you there's milk on the floor. It's, who spilled that? Not me. It was Teddy. <laughs> and uh, GPT acts in the same way. It's unreliable. Uh, it's an unreliable witness. And equally, it is learning from the prompts that we provide it. So this provides a ethical risk to organizations, not only in terms of what they produce. And we've seen a US lawyer uh, removed from their role because they used ChatGPT information, led them to be removed from their job. We've also seen unethical conduct reported from a counselling app in France, in Belgium, sorry, um, where the individual, it is reported, committed suicide, and that suicide was assisted by the AI app. Now, these are isolated cases, but are enough for us to pause and think, how do we make sure that we put the controls in place to protect the data we provide? and also ensure and verify the data that it produces back for us. So we've still got some way to go. And we, as practitioners, managers, leaders in organizations, coaches, need to be doing more work to collaborate with those engineers, with individuals who are building the tool to reduce the biases, to reduce the risks and reduce the unethical conduct, which ensures that we as humans end up staying as the masters rather than becoming the servant that AI could potentially generate as an outcome in 2035. That's fascinating. And I, I think through my own trajectory, when I, when I was at school and early at university, you know, you went to the library and got a physical book off the shelf to find something out and properly researched. And you had to think about where you were going to source your data from because you had to go find the book. And then with the advent of Google and search engines, you just say, this is what I want, and somebody provides you with some books in front of you, you can still get some idea for some of them on whether they're more likely to be reliable or not, because one of them might be a university website or, or whatever. But as you say, that's not always fully reliable. But now with GPT, you're in an environment where it's unreliable, impossible to know where the data's come from. 
easy, free, and really convincing. And the thing that makes me most worried from sort of neuroscience perspective is we're just training people not to think anymore. So when they ask GPT a question and it says it's the answer, how many people actually go, well, how would I know whether that were true or not versus I just write it in without even thinking about it. And we're sort of taking out that step in the process of even in Google, you look at the address bar and say, you know, is this a university for the sake of argument or is it just some random website that's gone away. So you know, I think we're just going to get lots of people who are default assuming it's true. And therefore the responsibility of the owners and producers and academics and so on is really high to stop it getting a little bit out of control, I think. So the other thing that I see a lot of at the moment is that we obviously saw this huge proliferation of coaches in the pandemic. And lots of people went for lots of good reasons. You know, my, my job is incredibly stressful. I've done this 20 years, I want to have more sense of purpose in life, and I want to have more flexible lifestyle, I'm going to become a coach. And so it's been this massive growth of the number of coaches. At the same time, everybody needs a coach. And I think lots of people also see the value of coaching is really high, and the sort of justification of the value of coaching is becoming more and more robust over time. What's your perspective on, have we got too many coaches now? Or do you think actually we're on the early foothills of the number of coaches we really need in this world? So I would say you can never have too many coaches. <laughs> but let me clarify that. When I use that term, I'm really talking about it being used as a conversational tool. Mm. So Rosie Evans and I, in this Future of Coaching article that I mentioned earlier, talk about phases of coach development. And our proposition was that probably humans have been coaches for all of human history. So go back 15,000 years when you and I, or at least our ancestors, were crossing the savannah, when we were hunter-gatherers, maybe in the Netherlands or across the lowlands that connected the continent to Britain, and there were no small boats, people just walked across, and they were using the fields for berries, they were using the forests to capture game, and eating it and moving valley to valley, probably they were using directive communication, go over there, and also coaching conversations. What do you think you should be looking for when we're moving into this forest? They had a very short lifespan. They're moving between one environment and another, so highly dynamic environments. Coaching is, we know now from the science and research, fabulous as a teaching aid to help people to understand the criteria, how they change in different environments, in dynamic environments. So probably they were using coaching as part of their conversational repertoire. And then we take it on to a fifth phase. And our fifth phase, which we were suggesting might be emerging in the 2030s or beyond, was that coaching just returns to that position where it's used by everybody. And that it isn't an identity. It might be by some, but everybody is literate, is numerate, but is also coach-like that they have a coaching mindset, a growth mindset, a developmental mindset for themselves and for others, and that they engage in conversations that are listening, non-judgmental, that are encouraging and affirming, that listen, ask open questions. And whether that's colleagues at work, whether that's their children, whether that's people in their network. So coaching returns to the people. It returns to all of us, and we become all more coach-like in our conversations, because coaching is a phenomenal way to help people to understand themselves, understand others, and to 
resolve problems in a solution orientated way. So I think that that's my hope that ultimately we are all returning to coaches and that we don't leave it as maybe coaching is at the moment in a Socratic way. And the Socratic style of coaching, Socrates wandering through the streets of Athens with his students, talking to them about democracy, asking open questions. We're doing that in a different way now. We're doing it digitally, but it's still a privileged few. Yes, there might be 100,000 coaches in the world who are earning a portion of all of their income from coaching. And maybe there are half a million people as of today who are accessing in a live relationship with a coach, helping them to improve. But even if we double the number of coaches or double the number of clients to a million or to five million, there are 10 billion people on this planet. And wouldn't it be fabulous if each of them were able to reflect and understand themselves more deeply and help others to grow and develop by using more reflective questions, by using a more coaching style? It's just part of a repertoire for human conversation and ultimately to help them and others to become more choiceful and to develop more personal responsibility. Fantastic. Last question. If there's someone listening to this podcast and maybe they're a leader in their organization and they're thinking, I've heard about this coaching thing, I understand it a bit, but I'd like to find out more about it and how I can bring more coaching into the way I lead. Where's a place that you'd advise people to start to understand more about bringing coaching into their leadership? Well, Gary, of course, I would say if people are looking to develop their coaching skills, I would say come and talk to us at Henley Business School. We're the global leading research and training body in the world and with fabulous accredited coach training programs, but also manager as coach programs so people can access that. And if they're looking to build a coaching culture in their organization, I'd say reach out to me, very happy to have a conversation and for me to connect you with colleagues at Ezra where we can work with your leaders and managers to help them to become more coach-like, but also to use coaching to drive performance and to protect their well-being. Fantastic. And how can people find out more about you and the work that you do? So I always say connect to me on LinkedIn, always lovely to hear from people. And secondly, if people are interested in reading my work, of course, there are a host of books, but I also publish most of my material for free Give it away on my website, jonathanpassmore.com. People are very welcome to go and read uh, and pursue some of that content, follow their own areas of interest. Fantastic. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-leading coach Professor Jonathan Passmore, it was feeling out of his depth at university that ignited an incredible work ethic that fueled extraordinary career success. If you're interested in coaching, then go to Amazon or your favorite bookstore and find some of Jonathan's books, Becoming a Coach, The Coach's Handbook, and Coaching Tools are three excellent ones to get started with. Jonathan, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your insights and for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here 
on the Unlock Moment.